From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. As I see it, the root cause of this transformation lies in a massive development across Euro-American intellectual life in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So in a lot of fields, from poetry to physics, from art to architecture, from music to mathematics, uh, and also in the fields that I'm interested in, namely law, political science, and economics, you can see versions of this transformation taking place. Welcome back to the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. On today's show, Professor Kunal Parker, the incoming Associate Dean for Intellectual Life, gives us a preview of the issues he tackles in his forthcoming book, The Turn to Process. Good morning, Kunal. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. I know we often talk about immigration issues in the news, but you are, in fact, a historian of immigration and citizenship law and also of American legal thought and American intellectual life more generally. You've spent the last few years looking at the massive reorientation of American legal, political and economic thinking between 1870 and 1970. What got you interested in this project? So what got me interested in this project was running into the work of uh, one of the major constitutional theorists of the post-World War II period, Alexander Bickel, and reading it sort of carefully and thinking uh, and focusing on the fact that Bickel was really thinking about procedure in ways that were sort of surprising and astonishing to me, uh, as if procedure was in fact the ground of law. What was truly law-like about law was not in fact substantive rights, but procedural ones. And that got me thinking uh, not only about the transformation of law, because I'm a historian of the 19th century, and the 19th century has a very different way of understanding and talking about law. Uh, But then also, it led me to think, is this a development that's similar in other fields? And I was anxious to sort of push my own boundaries a little bit. So I started exploring whether there were similar transformations in American political science and in economics. Very cool. What were the root causes of this transformation? So as I see it, the root cause of this transformation lies in a massive development across Euro-American intellectual life in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So in a lot of fields, from poetry to physics, from art to architecture, from music to mathematics, uh, and also in the fields that I'm interested in, namely law, political science and economics, you can see versions of this transformation taking place. And very briefly, Uh, What's going on is, uh, as the result of a range of different factors, thinkers start to question a whole range of received truths, moralities, rationalities, logics, aesthetic norms, and so on. As this notion of truth becomes more unstable, thinkers start looking for ways to get to truths. So there's a shift in general in the orientation of knowledge from truths to methods. A very good example of this 
is the modernist mid-century artist Jackson Pollock. Everyone is familiar, in fact, with Jackson Pollock's paintings, uh, and they should also be familiar with the range of films that were made and the photograph cycles that were made of Jackson Pollock painting, right? But what is Jackson Pollock's painting really about? It's less about any object out there that he's representing, and more, in fact, about the technique of painting. So when we think of Jackson Pollock, we think of those photographs of him dripping paint onto canvases. So it's really the technique of painting that's being pushed into the foreground, right? Not what the painting is about, but the way in which the painting is produced. And I take Jackson Pollock as a kind of um, symbol of this kind of transformation. Thinkers cease to look so much for truths and start focusing on methods, right? And if we think about this in the context of law, as legal thinkers in a movement led by such modernist or early modernist thinkers as like Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., as they start to question the idea that law is about some notion of morality or justice or truth or logic or rationality, they start thinking of law as a method. And what is more method-like in law than procedure, right? So procedure becomes what is most law-like or what's most authentic about law, right? Law gives up, in a sense, on the claim to embodying truth and becomes a method, a way of getting to truth. And you can see that development in political science in a different way and in economics in a different way. So I would argue that the cause of this development is really that kind of massive modernist crisis in knowledge that affects the Western world. And what I'm interested in is how that crisis of knowledge plays out in these fields, all three of which are crucial to the self-understanding of the American polity. So over the century from 1870 to 1970, you write that American conceptions of law, democracy, and markets move from being founded in truths, like we were just talking about, to being founded in methods, processes, and techniques. Can you talk about specific things within the American landscape that are impacted by these changes? So, well, one of the things that's both affected by, but also produces these changes, very significant, is the rise of the bureaucratic and administrative state. So you have to keep in mind that at the end of the 19th century, there really was no large administrative state of the kind we have now, right? And one of the things that happened when law sort of tended to be seen as procedural or democracy tended to be seen as a certain technique for eliciting public opinions, or markets tended to be seen as a technique, was that they were simultaneously making available the administrative state as itself a technique. So you have a world in which the American polity is seen as consisting of a plethora of different techniques, legal, political, economic, but also government agencies, right? So this is, in fact, a transformation that cannot easily be separated from the rise of the administrative state, which is the big development in the 20th century, right? Mm -hmm. It's the really the rise of these massive governmental agencies that shape and transform and rule our lives um, that had no analog in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. 
What are the implications of this turn to process for other big developments in this period, namely the civil rights movement? That's a great question. Um, the civil rights movement, in fact, is profoundly affected by this turn to process, right? Uh, and we think of the civil rights movement as really something initiated by the Supreme Court's, you know, momentous uh, 1954 decision in Brown versus Board of Education, but not enough people who are not specialists or not legal thinkers are aware that the Supreme Court revolution, the quote, Warren Court rights revolution, um, was really a revolution of process. What the courts were doing was, in fact, fixing processes. They were fixing criminal procedure, voting rights, administrative processes, and so on. And many of the rights claims that were made in this period in from the 50s through the 60s and into the late 70s were, in fact, made uh, or and resolved in terms of procedure. To give you one very concrete example, there was a vigorous welfare rights movement uh, in the 60s and early 70s, uh, and the US Supreme Court uh, indicated some sympathy with the welfare rights movement, but it never declared a substantive right to welfare, right? So if you look at the major constitutional pronouncements on welfare, all welfare recipients got were in fact increased procedural protections. So the turn to process has huge implications for various aspects of the civil rights movement and the social movements of the 60s. It's also important to keep in mind that even though you have, you know, major blows in favor of equality like Brown versus Board of Education and the cases that followed it, um, one of the key things to think about there was how the court went about implementing this revolution, right? And it was really about slow change. It was about letting things work out. And they were very conscious about the processes through which this was going to take place. So um, the turn to process, and, you know, and I could say a little bit as well, that the turn to process um, and the civil rights movement particularly was also very influential, uh, influential in political science. It created a sort of, um, had an impact in political science and major American political thinkers also read the civil rights movement through this kind of process turn. So there's a lot to say about the relationship between the turn to process and the civil rights movement. Hmm. Um, so can we ever, as a society, return to the rule of law as founded in injustice and morality? So that's a complicated question, uh, partly because the people who engineered the shift, as I call it, from truths to methods, would not have said that um, this was not just, right? It's a very different conception of justice. Right. You move away from a substantive notion of justice, right, to a procedural notion of justice. Justice, as the philosopher John Rawls uh, says, justice as fairness rather than justice as substantive morality. So it's not that the shift means that we've moved away from those questions, but we've started approaching those questions in a very different way from a thinker in 1850 might have done. Having said that, uh, one can also say that within especially the more conservative turn that the Supreme Court has taken, certain kinds of rights are now being described all over again uh, as if there's something natural about them. This would not have been the way prominent legal thinkers so in 1950 would have seen matters, but this is in fact something that we might have to think about now as yet another transformation in the law. 
Good. Well, I don't want this to be the spoiler episode. When and where will your book be available? So the book is called The Turn to Process, um, American Legal, Political and Economic Thought, 1870 to 1970. And it is due out in November of this year. We'll be looking for it. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks for joining us for The Explainer and a whole new season of Explaining. If you enjoy our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at theexplainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uges. Today's show is brought to you by Miami Law's 48th Boyer Institute on Condominium and Cluster Development. The conference, held September 28th and 29th at the Boca Raton Resort, will cover the latest on key topics for attorneys and professionals involved in condominiums, homeowners, and community association law and development, including the latest Surfside legislation. For more information, visit www.law.miami.edu.